Hello and welcome to this episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. As usual, we'll start with a story, then some discussion about the story and the folklore that's contained in it, and then discussion about the food in the story. Our story today is The Grateful Tartalo and the Arensigo, a Basque folk tale that was collected by Wentworth Webster in Basque Legends with an essay on the Basque language from 1879. Our story is adapted from that text. So, are you listening comfortably? Then, I'll begin. Like many of us who are, have been and shall be in the world, there was a king and his wife and three sons. The king went out hunting one day and caught a tartalo. He brings him home and shuts him up in prison in a stable and proclaims by the sound of a trumpet that all his court should meet the next day and afterwards he would show them a creature such as they'd never seen before. The next day the two sons of the king were playing a ball against the wall of the stable where the tartalo was confined and the ball went into the stable. One of the boys goes and asks the tartalo, Sorry about my ball, I beg you. He says, Yes, if you'll deliver me. Yes, yes, and he threw him the ball. A moment after, the ball goes again to the tartalo. He asks for it again, and the tartalo says, If you'll deliver me, I'll give it to you. The boy says, Yes, yes, takes his ball and goes off. The ball goes into the stable for a third time, but the tartalo will not give it before he's let out, very sensibly. And the boy says he hasn't got a key, and the tartalo says to him, Go to your mother and tell her to look in your right ear because something hurts. Your mother will have the key in her left pocket. Take it out. The boy goes and does as the tartalo had told him. He takes the key from his mother and delivers to the tartalo. When he was letting him go, he said to him, What shall I do with the key now? I'm undone. The tartalo says to him, Go again to your mother, tell her your left ear hurts you, and ask her to look and slip the key into her pocket. The tartalo tells him too that he'll soon have need of him, and he only has to call him and he'll be his son forever. He puts the key back, and everyone came to dinner. When they'd eaten well, the king said to him that they must go and see the curious creature. He took the court with him. When they got to the stable, he found it empty. He was so angry and ashamed, because he promised everyone this amazing creature. And he said, I would like to eat the heart, half-cooked and without salt, of him who's left my creature go. Sometime afterwards, the two brothers quarrelled in the presence of their mother, and one said to the other, I'm going to tell our father about the affair of the tartalo. When the mother heard that, she was afraid for her son, and said to him, Take as much money as you wish. And she gave him the fleur-de-lis. By this you'll be known everywhere as the son of a king. Petit Georges, for that was his name, went off then, far, far, far away. He spent and squandered all of his money, and didn't know what to do for more. He remembered the tartalo and called him directly. He came, and Petit Georges told him all his misfortunes. But he hadn't even got a penny left. He doesn't know what's going to become of him. The tartalo says to him, When you've gone a short way from here, you will come to a city. A king lives there. You go to his house, and they will take you as a gardener. You will pull up everything that is there in the garden, and the next day everything will come up more beautiful than before. Also, three beautiful flowers will spring up, and you will carry them to the three daughters of the king, and you'll give the most beautiful to the youngest daughter. The prince went off then, as he'd been told, 
and asked if they wanted a gardener. They said yes, indeed, very much. Their garden was looking sadly overgrown. He went to the garden and he pulled up fine cabbages and beautiful leeks as well. The youngest of the king's daughters saw him and told her father. And her father said to her, Leave him alone. Give him a chance. We'll see what he'll do afterwards. And indeed, the next day, he saw cabbages and leeks such as he'd never seen before. Petit Georges took a flower to each one of the young ladies. The eldest said, I have a flower that the gardener has brought me, which has not its equal in the world. And the second said that she has one too, and that no one has ever seen one so beautiful. And the youngest said that hers was still more beautiful than theirs, and the others confessed that it was too. The youngest of the young ladies found the gardener very much to her taste. Every day she used to bring him his dinner, a dish of toloso beans with pickled quindilla peppers, cabbage and blood sausage. And after a certain time, getting to know him, she said, You must marry me. The lad said to her, That's impossible. The king would not allow. He wouldn't like such a marriage. The princess said, Well, indeed, it's hardly worthwhile. In eight days, I shall be eaten by the errand to go. So, for seven more days, she brought him his dinner. And on the evening of the eighth day, she told him, This is the last time I'll be bringing you dinner. The young man said, no, you'll bring it again, and that somebody's bound to help you. The next day, Petit Georges goes off at eight o'clock to call the Tartalo. He told him what happened. The Tartalo gave him a fine horse, a handsome outfit, and a sword, and tells him to go to such a spot, and to open the carriage door with his sword, and that he will cut off two of the serpent's heads. Petit Georges goes off to the said spot. He finds the youngest young lady in the carriage. He bids her open the door, and the young lady says she can't open it, that there are seven doors, and that he had better go away, and it's enough for one person to be eaten. Petit Georges opened the doors with his sword, and sat down by the young lady's side. He told her he has hurt his ear, and asked her to look at it. At the same time, he cut off seven pieces of the seven robes which she wore, without the young lady seeing him. At the same instant came the serpent, and said, Ah, instead of one, I'll have three to eat. Petit Georges leapt on his horse and said to him, You will not touch one, you will not have one of us. And they began to fight. With his sword he cut off one head, and the horse used his feet to cut off another. And the Erinsegay asked for peace until the next day. Petit Georges left the young lady there. She was full of joy. She wanted to take the young man home with her. But he wouldn't go, not by any means. He said he couldn't. He'd made a vow to go to Rome and told her that tomorrow my brother will come and he'll be able to do something too. The young lady went home, and Petit Georges went to his garden. At noon she came to him with a dinner, and Petit Georges said to her, You see, it's really happened as I told you. He hasn't eaten you. No, but tomorrow he will eat me. How can it be otherwise? No, no, tomorrow. You'll bring my dinner again. Help will definitely come. The next day Petit Georges went off at eight o'clock to the Tartalo, who gave him a new horse different uniform and a fine sword. At ten o'clock he arrived where the young lady was. He bid her open the door, but she says she couldn't. She couldn't in any way open fourteen doors. She's there, she can't open them, and he should go away. It's enough for one person to be eaten, and she's grieved to see him there. As soon as he touched them with his sword, the fourteen doors flew open. He sat down by the side of the young lady and told her to look behind his ear, for it hurt him and at the same time he cut off 14 bits of the 14 dresses she was wearing. 
As soon as he'd done that, the Erin Sugay came, saying joyfully, I'll eat not one, but three. Patty Georges said to him, not even one of us. He leapt on his horse and began to fight with the serpent. The serpent made some terrible headway, and after having fought for a long time, at last Patty Georges was a conqueror. He cut off one head, the horse cut another one off with his feet. The Erin Sugay begged for peace until the next day. Petit Georges granted it, and the serpent went. The young lady wished to take the young man home with her, to show him to her father, but he wouldn't go by any means. He told her he must go to Rome, and set off that very day that he's made a vow, that tomorrow he'll send his cousin, who's very bold and afraid of nothing. The young lady goes to her father. Petit Georges went to the garden. Her father was delighted, but he couldn't understand it at all. The young lady went again with the dinner. And the gardener said to her, You see, you've come again today, as I told you. Tomorrow you'll come just the same. I'd be very glad of it if I do, she said. The next day, Petit Georges went off at eight o'clock to the Tartelot. He said to him that the serpent still had three heads to be cut off, and he still had need of all the help. The Tartelot said, Keep quiet, keep quiet, you'll conquer him. He gave him a new uniform, finer than the others, a more spirited horse, and a terrible Alano, a dog. A sword, a bottle of good scented water, he said to him. The Erensegay will say to you, Ah, if I had a spark between my head and my tail, how I would burn you and your lady, your horse and your Alano. And you, you'll say to him then, If I had the good scented water to smell, I would cut off a head from thee, the horse another, and the Alano would cut another. You'll give this bottle to the young lady, who will place it in her bosom, and at the very moment you shall say that, she must throw some in your face, and on the horse and on the Alano as well. The Alano, in case you didn't know, is a big, fierce dog. He then went off without fear, because the Tartler had given him this assurance. He then came to the carriage, as before. The young lady said to him, Where are you going? The Erensugay will be here directly. It's enough if he eats me. She said to her, Open the door. She told him it was impossible. There were twenty-one doors. The young man touched them with his sword, and they opened themselves. The young man said to her, giving her the bottle, When the Aren Sergei shall say, If I had a spark between my head and my tail, I would burn you. I'll say to him, If I had a drop of the good-scented water under my nose, you take the bottle and throw some over me at the moment. He then made a look in his ear, and while she was looking, he cut off twenty-one pieces of her twenty-one dresses that she was wearing. At the same moment, along came the Aren Sergei, saying with joy, Instead of one, this time I'm going to have four to eat. The young man said to him, and you'll not touch one of us. He leapt onto his very spirited horse, and they fought more fiercely than, fiercely than ever. The horse leapt as high as a house, and the serpent in a rage said to him, If I had a spark of fire between my tail and my head, I'd burn you, and your lady, and this horse, and this terrible Alano. The young man said, I, if I had the good-scented water under my nose, I'd cut off one of your heads, the horse another, and the Alano another. As he said that, the young lady jumped up, opened the bottle, and very cleverly threw the water just where it was wanted. The young man cut off a head with his sword, the horse another with his feet, and the Alano tore off the last one, and they made an end of the serpent. The young man cut the seven tongues out of all of the heads with him, and threw away the heads. You can imagine how happy the young lady was. She wanted to go straight to her father with her preserver, and her father must thank him too, that he owed his daughter to him. But the young man said, Thanks very much, but it was impossible for him that he must go and meet his cousin at Rome. They've made a vow, and that on their return, all three will come to her father's house. 
The young lady was vexed, having been saved from a serpent. You expect to take the young man home with you, but she went off without losing any time to tell her father what happened. The father was very glad that the Erensage was utterly destroyed, and he proclaimed in all the country that he who has killed the Erensage should come forward with a proof of it. The young lady went again with a dinner to the gardener, and he said to her, I told you true then, you won't be eaten. Something has then killed the Erensage. She related to him what had taken place. But things have taken a turn. Some days afterwards there appeared a charcoal burner who said he had killed the Arensage and was come to claim the reward. When the young lady saw the charcoal burner, she said immediately that most certainly it was not him, that it was a fine gentleman on horseback and not a pest of a man like him. The charcoal burner showed the heads of the Arensage and the king said that in truth this must be the man. The king had only one word to say, that she must marry him. The young lady said she would not, and the father began to compel her, saying that no other man had come forward. But as the daughter would not consent, to, you know, buy some time, the king proclaimed in all of the country that he who killed the Arensage would be capable of doing something else too, and that on such a day all the young men should assemble, and he would hang a diamond ring from a bell, and that whoever rode under it should pierce the ring with his sword, and that person would certainly have his daughter. From all sides of the country arrived many young men. Our petit Georges went off to the Tartelot and told him what had happened, and that he again has need of him. The Tartelot gave him yet one more handsome horse, a wonderful uniform and a splendid sword. Equipped thus, petit Georges went off with the others and got ready. The young lady recognised him immediately and said so to her father. He has the good luck with the help of the Tartelot, to carry off the ring on his sword. But he doesn't stop at all. He just goes off galloping as hard as a horse can go. The king and his daughter were in a balcony, looking on all the gentlemen in shock and surprise. They saw that he was carrying on. The young lady said to her father, Papa, call him. Her father said to her in an angry tone, He's going off, because apparently he doesn't want you. And he hurled his lance at him and struck him on the leg. But the young man rode on. You can well imagine how chagrined the young lady was. The next day she went with the gardener's dinner and saw him with his leg bandaged and asked him what had happened. He doesn't give a very good answer and she began to suspect something and went to tell her father how the gardener had his leg tied up and he must go and ask him what's the matter. But he had told her it was nothing. The king did not want to go, didn't really care that much about the gardener and said that she must get it out of him. But eventually he was convinced and to please his daughter says he goes speak to the gardener. He went then and asked him, what is the matter? The gardener said that a blackthorn has run into him. The king then got quite cross, said there isn't a blackthorn at all in my garden and you're telling me lies. The daughter said to him, tell him to show it to us. They showed it to them and they were astonished to see that the lance was still there. The king didn't know what to think of it all. The gardener deceived him and he was given his daughter. But Petit Georges uncovering his chest showed the fleur-de-lis that was there. The king didn't know what to say, although he was quite pleased he was getting a king's son and not just a gardener, and it did explain some of his very unusual gardening techniques. The daughter said, this is my preserver and I'll marry no one else but him. 
Petit Georges asked the king to send for five dressmakers, the best in the town, and five butchers. The king sent for them. Petit Georges asked the dressmakers if they've ever made any new dresses which had a piece out. And the dressmakers said, no, of course not, why would you do that? He counted out the pieces and gave them to the dressmakers, asking if it was like that they had given the dress to the princess. And they said, obviously, certainly not. He sent then to the butchers and asked if they've ever killed animals without tongues. They said, no. He told them then to look in the heads of the Orensigay. And they saw the tongues weren't there. And out of his pocket, in a quite disgusting fashion, he took a package which had the tongues of the Orensigay inside. The king, having seen all that, heard nothing else to say. He was a king's son after all, so he gave him his daughter. Petit Georges said to him that he must invite his father to the wedding, but if he could ask him as though it had come from himself rather than the prince, and they would serve him up at dinner a sheep's heart, half-cooked, without salt. They made a great feast, and everyone from the surrounding countries and the big families all came to it. But to the prince's father, they sat him separately, and placed a heart before him, and made him carve it himself. He was very angry about that. The prince then walked over and said to him, I expected that, and he added, My poor father, have you forgotten how you said that you wished to eat the heart, half-cooked and without salt, of him who let the tartar go? It's not my heart, but a sheep's heart. I've done this to recall to your memory what you said, and to make you recognise me. The king, who hadn't really wanted his son to be dead, and was so thrilled to see him, embraced his son, and they told each other all their news and caught up, and he told him everything that the Tartler had done for him. His father returned happy to his house, and told his mother what had happened, and she was happy too. And Petit Georges lived very happily with his young lady at the king's house, and they wanted for nothing, because they always had the Tartalot at their service. And that, gentle listener, is the end of my tale. And I hope it pleased you, for it had no other purpose. So, what did you think of the story? It has some wonderful, fantastic moments, as well as some quite yucky ones. The story displays some of Bach's folklore's more well-known characters, as well as having the elements of ATU tale type 300, the Dragon Slayer. Shall we explore the tale type before we move to the folklore elements? The beginning of this made me search through several books for the story it reminded me of. It turned out it was The Hairy Man. A story that I first read in Andrew Lang's, I think, Crimson Fairy book. It's actually a story from the Ukraine, and it's quite popular, or was quite popular in Russia as well. In that story, the hairy man is captured by the king at some considerable trouble, and then freed by the young prince. The prince escapes his father's death sentence and wanders the forest until he's rescued by, guess who? Yes, you're right, the hairy man. He lives with the man for several years until he leaves, taking with him the gift of three amazing apples, one copper, one silver and one gold. The story progresses differently from then on. Spoiler, there's no dragon but I'll leave you to track it down for you itself. It's a story that's believed to come from the Ukraine, as I said, but there is also a German version, Iron John. The rest of our tale, though, is pretty much Dragon Slayer from the tale type, if you exclude the purely bass mythical elements. I'd say that the closest comparison is probably with the dragon with seven heads from Italo Calvino's Italian folk tales. 
The hero in that tale also has a sword, a horse and a dog. And he also keeps just the tongues. And there's a false hero who pretends to be the princess's saviour. The false hero in that story is a coal man, which bears some similarity to the charcoal burner in our story. There are some big differences too, as the hero is not a prince, doesn't have magical help. He also has identical brothers which he murders because he thinks they've slept with his wife, the princess, which makes for a terrible ending until everyone remembers there's a magical salve. It's a fairy tale that doesn't have to make sense. There are many European variants of the Dragon Slayer, and our tale also takes some things from Celtic tales. The Three Days Fight and the Dog appear in the Scottish Tale of the Sea Maiden. But it also has French elements, like the name of our hero, Petit Georges, or Small George, and the Fleur de Lis, which apparently the original Talifot had the most miraculous ability to identify royalty in general, and King's sons in particular. You can understand the French influence as it lies so close to the Basque country. We should also look at the particular Basque mythological elements in our story. The folklore of the Basque country is very complex, with a strong pagan base as you'd expect of such an ancient civilization, tempered with the devout Catholicism of more modern times. There are many excellent books on the topic, but one element I found interesting was that pre-Christian Basque peoples appeared to believe that all things came from below the earth, including weather, rather than from above. They also lived in great harmony with the earth, and the most important figures in their mythology were goddesses rather than gods. The other element I found intriguing was the importance of the Basque concept of exter, or house. I don't think I can do it justice, so here are the words of José Miguel de Barandiaran, a renowned Basque etymologist. It is, of course, a sacred place protected by the fire of the hearth, similar to a spirit called Andra Mari that has supernatural virtues, sacred because of the laurel growing in the garden, all kept inside the house, because of various branches of hawthorn, ash, and flowers related to the solstice, because of the flower of wild thistle, symbol of the sun, because of the axe and the hoe that are endowed with mystical powers, because it is the dwelling of spirits of ancestors, or a place frequented by them, because of the perennial offering of light for the souls, by keeping the hearth lit, fire lit, according to a ritual prescription, or requirement of providing light for the dead, even if it's only a single straw, because of the practice of paying pious offerings of food, intended for the dead members of the household, on a shelf outside the windows, because of the ancient custom of constructing the houses so that the main entrance faces the rising sun, and finally because the house is the family cemetery. The two most important Basque mythological characters in our story were the Tartalo and the Erensuge. The Tartalo is a cyclops who lives in the mountains and keeps sheep, and is nearly always evil in Basque tales. He appears in some of the scariest Basque tales, where it kidnaps some young person or captures someone forced by a storm to take refuge in its cave, then draws and quarters him, roasts him on the fire and eats him. You can see why his protective and helpful role in our story is very unusual. It feels in some ways as though he plays the part of a gin in a bottle, always on call for wishes. He's more clever in this tale than he normally is in other traditional tales. The Arensuge at least behaves more usually than the Tartalo. It appears in the form of a serpent, sometimes with seven heads, occasionally only with one. The end part of its name, Suge, translates as serpent, saw snake. Debarandiran considers it one of the most important spirits in Basque mythology. The minor Basque mythological character is the Alane, which is described as an animal who serves the Tartalo like a dog, but much larger and more terrible, but also more intelligent and able to carry out any messages. I do only have Webster's word for this last creature, though. I haven't been able to find any other references to it. I 
think it's time now to move to the food section of our discussion today, mostly because I have read several books on fast food to further research this episode, and you deserve to be made as hungry as I am. Fast food is simple, but it doesn't mean easy. They have spent a very long time making wonderful flavours from the best available ingredients. There is very little added to mask or confuse flavours, so what you get is the true sense of the food, made to shine by experienced cooks. San Sebastian has three Michelin-styled restaurants, and countless other wonderful restaurants, especially those known for fantastic pinchos, the Basque equivalent of tapas. However, at its heart is the cuisine of simplicity, which rewards those cooks who can choose good raw ingredients and have an instinct in how best to use them. Even if this podcast was countless hours long, I couldn't do justice to the whole of Basque cuisine, so I'm just going to concentrate on some of the ingredients in the dish that the princess brings to the gardener. Teloso beans with pickled quandilla peppers, cabbage and blood sausage. We'll start with the beans. Beans have traditionally played a large part in Basque cooking because the growing of them suits the climate. They also adapted very quickly to the beans they brought back with them on their trading ventures to America. As Maria Jose Sevilla found when researching life and food in the Basque country, this is a quote from a cook who lives the traditional farmhouse lifestyle. My brothers always demand beans as their first course, and that gets tiresome, it claims Candida. We eat beans every blessed day of the year. The beans are traditionally planted amongst the maize, so it provides the support for the climbing plants. In this way, the brothers kill two birds with one stone and do not need to erect poles for them. Every day, Candida cooks the beans with a little carrot and onion. Alubias to Tolosa are famous because of the particular quality of the beans, as Mark Kalatsky says in The Basque History of the World. In the firmament of Greek croissant astronomy, there are many shining stars, and Alubias to Tolosa are generally considered one of the premier magnitude. These red beans actually are black, but when they're cooked they turn red and produce a thick chocolate-coloured sauce. Tolosans believe the beans must be cooked in earthen crocks, Bass have done elaborate studies involving gelatinisation of starches and the breaking down of cellulose to explain why beans should not be cooked in metal. They also believe that Tolosa is an ideal bean town because the surrounding area has non-calcareous soil, soil without calcium or lime, which produces the best beans. But at the same time, calcareous water of Tolosa is thought to be the optimal liquid in which to cook the beans. Though currently the 47 officially recognised producers of Tolosan red beans sell them to be used elsewhere. It is believed that the true dish can only be made with Tolosan water. Busker Isuzu suggested that cooks elsewhere try using rainwater. Beans are sold at the market in Tolosa, which has been held there since 1256 CE, although these specific beans have only been around for a lot less than that. They even have an official competition every year to see who grows the best beans and who makes the best version of Alubias to Tolosa. We'll move on now to the Guandilla peppers. These are a specialty of the Basque country, they can be grown elsewhere, but they don't taste the same. It's said that the red colour in the Basque flag comes from the dried versions of these peppers, which were strung together to dry and stood out dark red against the white houses, echoing the traditional red house trim. Here we're looking at the pickled green version, which is said to be best to have with the beans. And I'll hand over to Maria Jose Sevilla and Candida again. The dish of chilies is empty, and so Candida tips in a few more from a jar. The family could not imagine eating red beans without some chilies to go with them. To prepare these, she buys several kilos of the very small variety, then washes them and puts them in a large glass jars with chickpeas and a clove of garlic. She fills each jar with half water and half wine vinegar. After a year in the larder, they'll be delicious. 
The chickpea was supposed to keep the peppers bright green. Our last ingredient is the blood sausage. And to protect those of you with more delicate constitutions, I'll just mention that there's a traditional annual ceremony in the mountains, which results in these and many other traditional pork products. If you'd like more details, the epilogue of the Basque History of the World has a very detailed description. I hope I've given you enough of a taste of this fascinating region and cuisine to make you find out more for yourselves. Today's recipe is obviously bean-based, but I've gone for a lighter yet fairly traditional recipe, more suited to this time of year, and an excellent way to use either fresh broad beans which are in season, or the really excellent tiny frozen ones. It's vegetarian, but can have a meaty element added in the form of cured ham, should you so wish. It makes an excellent starter, or one of a collection of pinchos. I love them with the egg, but you might find it a bit big for a snack. You can maybe add lightly boiled quail's eggs instead for prettiness and ease of eating. And if you can get hold of Idisabel cheese, that'd be wonderful, but you could substitute manchego or even pecorino if it's easier to find. The title of today's dish is slow-cooked broad beans with poached egg and is essentially what it says on the tin, although there are no tins involved obviously here. The broad beans are cooked with shallots and olive oil and white wine and vegetable stock for about 30 minutes-ish. And then when they're nearly ready, you poach eggs in a saucepan of simmering water. Then when you're ready to eat, you spoon in the beans first and then the egg on top and scatter over cheese, black pepper and a drizzle of extra virgin olive oil. It's wonderful and very simple. If you enjoyed today's episode or you'd like to get in touch about anything that's been in the podcast, please don't hesitate to get in touch with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm at fairytalesfood or if it's something a bit longer than that then please use the contact details on my website hestiaskitchen.co.uk If you enjoyed today's episode it would be great if you could rate or review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It's really helpful and it helps other people find the podcast. They might enjoy it as much as you do. I think that's all for today and thanks again for listening to this episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales.